Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks us uh, through his word in Matthew 5, 8 and Jeremiah 17, 7 to 10. Bienaventurados los de limpio corazón, porque ellos verán a Dios. Bendito el varón que confía en Jehová y cuya confianza es Jehová, porque será como el árbol plantado junto a las aguas, que junto a la corriente echará sus raíces y no verá cuando viene el calor, sino que su hoja estará verde y en el año de sequía no se fatigará ni dejará de dar fruto. Engañoso es el corazón, más que todas las cosas, y perverso. ¿Quién lo conocerá? Yo, Jehová, que escudriño la mente, que pruebo el corazón, para dar a cada uno según su camino, según el fruto de sus obras. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. So probably the most uh, constant, consistent cultural refrain in our modern era um, it's in nearly every culture-shaping institution is really some notion, notion that fulfillment in life can be found by us following our hearts. Yeah, if you stay true to yourself, your desires, you embrace your inner longings, you can't lose. That is the greatest way to fulfillment, and you're going to hear that kind of message from preachers to politicians to talk show hosts to musicians to influencers, following your heart. It's kind of the unifying pursuits that many find in finding fulfillment in life. But what are we to actually make of that kind of assertion? It's such a common idea, the idea of following our hearts. It's so common that we hardly ever challenge the idea. Because on the one hand, there's a powerfully important uh, idea at the center of that statement. That to follow your heart is a recognition of the value and the worth that you have as an individual. But on the other hand, we have this tension that not everyone really should be following their hearts. Not everyone has good, just, and wise desires and passions that they should pursue. And I think, if we're honest, we could probably think of many people that we really hope don't follow their desires and wishes and passions. Plus, Let's be real. What hearts are we talking about exactly? Uh, for many of us, if you're willing to admit it, I think it would be fair to say that as we get older and as we experience the world more and more, we realize that the passions that we had when we were 15 might not have been the best case scenario for our lives, right? To pursue your passions when you're 15 tend to be very different than when you are 50. And so what heart? is it that you should be following? What do we do with the reality that too often, even when we look at our own hearts, we realize our hearts don't necessarily know what is ultimately best because we don't know what is to come in life. And then we're confronted with the notion that here in our passage, that maybe we don't actually know our hearts like we think we do. And of course the tension now comes, could we still value ourselves, find worth in ourselves as an individual, if in the end, we don't know what's to come, we don't know the kind of heart that we're going to uh, want to have and the pursuits that we're going to have in the future, knowing that that's always changing, knowing that maybe we can't even trust ourselves, can we still find value and worth 
in ourselves as an individual. That's the kind of thing we're going to wrestle through today. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in a series called Thy Kingdom Come, which has been a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that gives us a glimpse of the nature and the character of his kingdom. And today, we're uh, continuing on looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And next, we come to Jesus' command and Jesus' call that blessed are the pure in heart. Now, we've said over the course of the series that another way that that can be translated is happy are those who are pure in heart. So what then does it mean to be pure? And maybe more pressingly for some, how does having a pure heart lead to the very happiness that we often try to find in following our heart? Well, to answer that question, let's consider what's being commanded here by understanding the heart, assessing the heart, and what it means to restore the heart, okay? So understand the heart, assess the heart, Restore the heart. First, understanding the heart. Uh, we need to begin by considering how the Bible uh, talks about the heart. The Bible actually uses the word heart nearly a thousand times throughout the Old Testament and the New. And so right now, just a heads up, if you're inclined to take notes, just know I'm going to be jumping all over the place for the next few minutes. Uh, just to give us a full biblical overview of what the heart is according to the Bible. And the reason why I want to start here is because the idea of the heart is complex and nuanced in the, in the scriptures. And that complexity is incredibly important for us to consider as we begin not only understanding the heart, but also as we begin to assess the heart. So in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are numerous uh, emphases that are placed on the heart because of how the ancient Hebrew people understood the heart. In these ancient times, they understood the heart to be several different things. They understood it to be central to life, uh, the giving of life, the sustaining of physical life. Uh, there's actually an interesting spot in 1 Samuel 25 where there's an actual reference to a heart attack. And so someone's heart stopped, they died. So they understood at that level that the heart was kind of at the center of physical life. But however, much like many other ancient peoples, they really didn't have an understanding of the brain as we tend to think about the brain today. And so as a result, much of what we associate to be happening inside the brain, they connected actually more to the heart. So for them, the heart was not only the center of physical life, but the heart was also the center of one's intellectual, emotional, and spiritual life. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. In 1 Chronicles 28, uh, 1 Samuel 2, Proverbs 23, it shows that the mind and the heart are interwoven. In other words, we think with our hearts. In uh, 1 Kings 3 and Proverbs 3, there's a sense in which the heart brings understanding to us. So what we think and how we think is a matter of the heart. Wisdom and discernment are rooted in the heart. But then there's other places where we experience, uh, scriptures talk about how we experience emotions in the heart. Exodus 4, Leviticus 19, Ecclesiastes 5, and so many other more that I could not possibly name now speak of how our emotions and the experience of those emotions are rooted in the heart. You can't experience fear in the heart and happiness in the heart. The idea of the broken heart actually comes from 1 Samuel 1 when Hannah, the mother of Samuel, is distressed and expresses that distress over not having a child. 
So not only is it the heart, the center of one's physical life, but again, it's at the center of the center of one's physical life, but again, it's at the center of our thought life, our emotional life. It's at the center of our spiritual life as well. So much so did they see the heart at the center of their spiritual life that there was one ancient practice for many of the devout uh, that you, you uh, there's a prayer in Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the Shema. And that prayer is actually repeated over and over again by the ancient peoples, ancient, um, ancient Israel, as well as many today. Deuteronomy 6. And this is what it says, four and, verses 4 and 5. This is the, the refrain. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The love the Lord with all, uh, I'm sorry, love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then in verse 6, the reason being is that these commandments that I give to you, the Lord says, today are to be on your hearts. Places like Jeremiah 33 tell us that God's law is written on our hearts. All of that just to say, it's also the center of one's spiritual life. So, from the biblical perspective, the totality of a person is centered on, rooted in, connected to the heart. And if that's the case then, how does the Bible assess the condition of our heart? In other words, what does the Bible have to say about your rational, emotional, and spiritual being? Well, that brings us to our second point, assessing the heart, which now brings us again to our main passage. Let's look at uh, our passage again, particularly in uh, verse, uh, starting in verse 7. Let me read that for us. It says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Ooh, they will be like a tree planted by the water and sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It leaves, its leaves are always green. It has no worry in a year of droughts and never fails to bear fruit. But then hear this, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Jeremiah has shown us here. He's, uh, he's pained by what was happening in Israel at the time. And he's showing us this deep anguish that he had during uh, this season of Israel's history. What was going on then is Israel had largely rejected God and embraced pagan ideas, and those pagan ideas had actually created horrible injustices and violence in the land of Israel. And so in verse 9 and 10, his statement about the, uh, about the heart, the, the, the deceitfulness of the heart, this is this lament, this great lament that he has before God. The heart is so deceitful, he says, that only God understands the heart of humanity. And what's interesting is that when the Bible speaks of the heart over and over again, it's often describing the heart as fundamentally deceived and broken. Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 tell us that we possess a heart of stone. And as a result of that heart of stone, Jesus in Matthew 7 tells us that all wickedness, all evils come from this broken heart of stone. He says this, that what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. 
All of these evils come from inside and defile the person. This is Jesus speaking. In other words, all our failures, all of our sin, all of our lack of wisdom, all of our foolishness comes from the heart. A heart that is deceived and does not understand the depths of its own foolishness. And so, if the Bible's right about this, if we trust the words of Jesus, that our hearts, the center of our rational, emotional, and spiritual being, is fundamentally deceived, what should we do with this mantra that we hear over and over again to follow your heart? It seems like a fool's errand to follow your heart when your heart is telling you what your heart is telling you might very well be unreliable, unreliable at best and leading to complete destruction at worst. And here's what's interesting about the notion of following your heart. That whole idea of following your heart is actually, it's a very Western, very individualistic, very idealistic approach to knowledge and truth. And what I mean by that is sociologists have considered kind of the mind of the Western world. You have sociologists like Robert Bella, he called this expressive individualism. You had a uh, philosopher, Charles Taylor, who when looking at Western culture called it the age of authenticity and both articulated that Western thinking sees choice and following your heart, right? the ability to make your own decisions at every point as the ultimate ethic. Your ability to make your own decisions regardless of the consequence or wisdom of those decisions is the greatest expression of life and freedom for us in the West. Now, in, in some sense, I want to acknowledge that there's certainly some good things to that idea and having that kind of freedom. Individualism has good things, but also know this heavy emphasis on our own personal inclinations, our own desires, it's a real mixed bag. You know, for more traditional societies, uh, they tend to, traditional societies both in the past and even today, they do put a heavy um, limit on individual freedom. And putting that limit on individual freedom, it can certainly be oppressive, it can be repressive, and it can keep people from embracing their uniqueness or contributing their thoughts or opinions. And for those of you that come from more traditional backgrounds, you know exactly what I'm saying. But the benefit of more traditional societies is that there's also a very high regard for the collective and historic wisdom that comes from those that have come before and the things that they have learned about what works and doesn't work, what if, what's proven to be good and right and true in the world. It gives purpose and meaning in ways that individualism simply cannot. And some of you have been in this place before, but the pressures that we put on ourselves to be different and special and unique can often become its own oppressive burden. For us, the belief that uninhibited freedom of choice is the ultimate ethic. That is truly living. But at the same time, that uninhibited freedom of choice, that individualism, has also led to unparalleled levels of selfishness and self-centeredness that are often fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of God. A kingdom with a king who is constantly calling us to take our eyes off ourselves and place our eyes on his desires, his commands, his purposes, all while loving and caring and for and serving others. This is the great ethic of the Bible, which is to love God and to love others. 
You know, Jesus was once asked, what are the greatest commandments of the Bible? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer was actually to repeat the Shema that we just talked about from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says that the greatest command is that we are to love our God, the one who, with, with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. And then he goes on to say that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. In other words, the Bible's great ethic is not follow your heart, discover your own purposes, and pursue your passions. The Bible's great ethic is love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And following your heart, the notion of following your heart doesn't know what to do with that. Taking eyes off ourselves, putting our eyes on God and others. Following your heart time and time again leads to us privileging that which is coming out according to the Bible's testimony, privileging and prioritizing that which is deceived, as opposed to embracing God, embracing God, what God loves, embracing what God desires, and loving others as we would love ourselves. And I don't want to overstate this, but every time we do not love God well, and every time we fail to love others well, more than likely, it's because we've embraced an ideology that is fundamentally opposed to what Jesus says will make us truly happy. I mean, remember where we started. Jesus tells us that happy are those with a pure heart. But according to the rest of the Bible, our hearts are not are pure, but they're deceived, they're stoned. And without a desire to embrace the very things that Jesus commands us to be, which is a people who love God and love others. And the consequence from the biblical perspective is quite problematic for us. I'll explain to you what Romans 1 tells us that because of our, our foolish hearts are darkened, we claim to be wise. We think we're so wise, but in reality, we've become fools. And it goes on to say that as a result, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, our hearts, which are deceived and unoriented toward God, make gods out of anything else in order to avoid him as God. Every culture needs to wrestle with its own idolatrous tendencies. Every culture, every people group, will seek to put something in the place of God as God as a way to avoid him as God. And there's been so many different examples of this. Of course, ancient cultures, and maybe even today, some today, look at nature, look at the unknown as their source of meaning. Or there's other cultures that put a heavy emphasis on family or tribe to the point that they're even worshiping dead ancestors. For us, in our modern, individualistic, post-enlightenment, Western world, we have made ourselves gods by elevating our heart's desires to the point that those desires are our fulfillment in life. We've made individual success in our careers, in our work. Those endeavors have become gods, assuming that those successes will some way bring us the kind of fulfillment that Jesus says only comes with a pure heart. We've made autonomy over ourselves and over our bodies regardless of whether or not those decisions that we make with our bodies honor God, the creator of our bodies, instead of finding happiness in a pure heart. We've decided that we've, we will become the arbiters of what is true and good. 
We've decided to make all kinds of different things in our lives. What we desire them to be, our sexuality, our sexual desires, our sexual proclivities have become gods in our culture. Often, as a result of jettisoning all conceptions of God's creative purposes for something as powerful as sex and his family, we've made personal pleasure and the culture of consumption a God by assuming that I deserve pleasures in life, regardless of how the pursuits of those pleasures might negatively impact others. I mean, we've even made Western culture a God by assuming our conceptions of government or economics, the American dream has become a God by assuming that our conceptions, our established government, our established ideals and culture is somehow God's ideal on earth. We've replaced him as God and instead stuck even our own culture there. John Calvin, a famous uh, reformed theologian, he rightly said that the human heart is an idol factory and he's very right. When we take God off his throne, we will put anything there. And for us in the West, we've put ourselves there. All of this idolatry, elevating other things above God, is what Jeremiah 17 is telling us. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And according to Jesus, in Matthew 5, it is those who have a pure heart that see God. So where that leaves me is simply with the question, what does Jesus want from us then? Apparently our hearts are so deceived that we don't trust God, so deceived that we, don't, we won't be able to see God, and so deceived that we'll pursue anything else except God as God. So what does Jesus want from us? Calling us to have a pure heart. Well, we need to look not only at the problem of our hearts, this idolatry factory of a heart, but we also need to look at other things that God says about our hearts, specifically, what it means to experience and receive a restored heart, finally. As we said, Jeremiah, in our passage in Jeremiah 17, is lamenting that the heart is so deceived that only God can understand it. And while that statement is certainly lamentable, there's actually great hope in it as well. Because while we might be deceived because God knows the conditions of our heart, he knows what we need to have our hearts restored. Earlier, I referenced Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. It is there where we find the way in which we can possess a pure heart, the pure heart that Jesus describes in Matthew 5, all of which is the result of God knowing our heart so well, he knows what we need. And in those passages in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36, speaking to the people of Israel, God makes this promise. He says, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. I will put that within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Their hearts are deceitful above all things, God tells us. Our hearts are so deceitful that we cannot pursue him even if we wanted to. And so God says, I'll give them a new heart then. Their hearts will be turned from a drifting away from me to be turned back to me, from not trusting me to trusting me, to seeking to be their own gods, to now seeing me as the one and only true God. He will soften their hearts. This is the promise that God gives to us. This is what John 3 is talking about when we hear Jesus talking about being born again. 
Jesus is, Jesus is saying that as we trust in him, our hearts, the centrality of our being is reborn. And this is the work that Jesus comes to accomplish, to give us this new heart on the cross. Christ takes the old, deceived heart, and it's put to death. In his resurrection, the new is reborn, and a new heart is then given to those who come in faith in him. You know, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, Romans 12 tells us. We're conformed to the image of the Son, Romans 8 tells us. And though we might not be completely free from sin until Jesus one day returns, we've also become his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5. All of that is what it means to be given a new heart. Jesus becomes the very center of our thinking, our emotions, of our spiritual beings. Jesus, as we trust in him, gives us the pure heart needed to see God. And friends, I want you to also see that time and time again, as we've gone through these Beatitudes, we see that God does not require anything that he does not provide. He asks nothing of us that he does not empower us to accomplish as we trust in Jesus. Purity of heart is a gift of God to us as we trust in Jesus. Living a life that is pleasing to the Lord as we seek after his commands and his desires for us. All of this he requires of us and desires of us, but he empowers us to do it by giving us a new heart, by giving us his spirit through the work of Jesus. And in the end, we will see God as we look to Jesus and trust in him to give us that new heart. Now, having said all that, I want to just leave you with three encouragements about what it means to experience a new heart. The kind of heart that is pleasing to God, the kind of heart that keeps him at the center, the kind of heart that will not be deceived, but will trust in him more and more. I'm going to go through these really quickly, but I want to put these in front of you. I'm not usually um, this kind of preacher, but here are three ways to experience a pure heart. Receive your heart. Guard your heart and set your heart. Let me explain what I mean by that. First, if you want to experience this pure heart of Matthew 5, receive your heart. In Psalm 51, uh, that psalm, if you know the psalm, is King David's repentance before the Lord after he had raped Bathsheba. He had experienced and stepped into this grievous injustice. He was the perpetuator of great sin. And he recognized the depths of that sin. And in verse 10 of Psalm 51, he says this. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What is that? Do you hear the, the passiveness of that statement? He doesn't say, I will create in me a clean heart. He doesn't even say, God, would you help me to create a clean heart? No, he says, God, create in me a clean heart. I mean, that's the main point of what I'm trying to drive here. A pure heart starts with our reception of the new one by faith. So first, trust in Jesus and receive a new heart. You know, many, many Christians uh, conceive of salvation as accepting Jesus into your heart, but in reality, salvation is receiving a new heart. The second thing I want to put in front of you, encouragement, is not just receive your heart, but then, as you receive it, then guard your heart. Proverbs 4 Verse 23 says, above else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So, as you receive a new heart, 
God will be faithful to keep us until the end and he will empower us to guard our hearts. And as the passage goes on to say, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupting talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thoughts to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. In other words, guarding your heart means protecting yourself from the very things that seek to lure you back into deception. Guard your heart. Name them. Name the specific things that your heart is uh, prone to pursue. We all have them. We all have specific, be specific, about the things that draw your heart away from God. You know, there's that, that old hymn, Come Thou Fount. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're all prone to wander. So what is it that leads you away? What causes you to wander? Name it and guard against it. The last thing is set your heart. Colossians 3.1, the New Testament, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, NIV translation of Colossians 3.1 says that since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know, other translations say that we are to set our minds on the things that are above. Given all that we've said, though, that makes, that makes sense. Our hearts, our minds, set them on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, that seed that the right hand of God language is kingdom language. It's authority language. It's showing us that we are to call to mind and set our minds on the things of Christ's kingdom. So that it means looking to our Savior and setting our hearts on the things that he desires. To keep our eyes off of the deceptions of the earthly kingdoms and instead look to him. To focus our heart's desires on Jesus so that a pure heart might lead us into this new pure heart, leads us into being able to do these things, guarding against deceptions, setting our minds and our hearts on the things that are above. And my friends, as we do that, as we receive this new heart, as we, as we guard it, as we set our minds on things above, big things above, we will see this happiness that Jesus promises. Happy are those who have a pure heart, and so whatever, whatever might come in life, we can be confident to know that we are right before God, that we will see him as a result of this new heart that Jesus gives us as we trust in him. I pray that we would all experience that radical transformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, you see us. You see us fully and completely. You know us in ways that we don't even know ourselves. But God, uh, though you see the great deception of our hearts, though you see us wandering, though you see us putting other things before you, making other things gods, including ourselves, God, in your mercy and in your compassion, you don't leave us in that state. But God, you present us with a jarring statement that we are so deceived. But then you offer us life, you offer us a new heart as we trust in the work of our Savior Jesus. We are reborn. And so, God, would you help us to come with that kind of posture, desiring that pure heart that only you can give to us. And then, would, by your Spirit, would you help us to guard our hearts, help us to set our minds, 
hearts on things that are above. And would you make us a people that every day in the ways that we live, the ways that we think, reflect the beauty and the glory of your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.